0: Well, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Since it's the Sunday after Thanksgiving, I I have to ask this question of of each and every one of you, how many of you all are ready for Christmas? Got your shopping done? Got the house decorated, all of that? How many of you all have been ready since November the 1st? I'm always pushing Leslie to get it out earlier because we've got tons of boxes to unload from the attic, so I just like it staying up as long as possible so, uh, because I know I have to put them all back up in the attic, so uh, we, I'd shoot for earlier. But uh, in our family, there, there are a number of ways that we, we get ready, get our minds right for Christmas. One is we like to listen to certain Christmas songs in the car we drive to and from, church and visiting family over Thanksgiving and Christmas. And every now and again, we have certain new songs that we add to our our list, our playlist each and every year. We also have certain things we like to read around Christmas. I always like to get a new uh, Christmas devotional, a good one to uh, read throughout the, the month of Christmas. We have certain stories that we read in our uh, kids' story Bibles, and of course we we read the events surrounding Jesus's birth, and in in Matthew and in Luke's gospel. Over the years, in here in the church, we have uh, we have looked at Matthew's Christmas story. We've looked at Luke's Christmas story. We've looked at the Christmas story from Genesis to Revelation. We looked at the Christmas story from Genesis three, from John one and believe it or not, from Revelation 12. That is a Christmas passage, a good one, to, uh, to look at this time of year. But this year, changing it up again, sometimes this is challenging to do, the more Christmases I'm with you. But uh, this year I want to look at a few psalms that you can add, hopefully add to your, your, your Christmas reading that will help you get your mind right this Christmas. If you have your Bibles, turned to Psalm 96. For the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at the Psalms of Christmas. And for the next three weeks, before our candlelight service, I'm going to be looking at Psalm 96, 97, and 98. These are Psalms that are often selected by certain churches and read during the Advent season. They've been preached by a number of expositors in December for good reason. Hopefully, you will learn more why this morning and as we go on. But before we get into this text of Scripture, let me share with you a few things about studying the Psalms that will hopefully be helpful for you in this study and in your reading of the book of Psalms. The the book is found... In the poetry section of Scripture, as many of you know, our English Bibles are not arranged chronologically, though they, they, they read in that way chronologically for the most part, but, but not, not completely because they're not arranged that way. They're arranged by types of literature. In the Old Testament, you have the law first, then you have the history, then poetry, and then prophecy. And the Psalms, the largest book, in our Bibles, is found in the poetry section of Scripture. And within the book of Psalms, while it's poetry, there are various kinds and types of poetry, various kinds and types of Psalms within the book of Psalms. There are, for example, praise Psalms. Psalms of praise. In these Psalms, the attitude is extremely positive and upbeat and optimistic. Everything's great in these psalms. I'm good with God. He's good with me. Life's good in general, so I'm going to worship Him, and I'm going to call for others to worship Him. Those are psalms of praise. A lot of psalms of praise in the book of Psalms. There are also psalms of lament. Many of you know these, and you can pick these out when you read them. Whereas praise psalms are positive and upbeat. These are more negative, gloomy. Yet, They're hopeful. They're hopeful. There are psalms of thanksgiving. These psalms are a praise and lament psalm all rolled up into one. These psalms follow this pattern. Life was good, then it got bad, then it's good again, and I'm going to worship the Lord for that. There are psalms of confidence in these psalms. The psalmist is saying, I'm confident in you, God, no matter what. There are also psalms of remembrance. In these psalms, the psalmist is looking back and he's making mention of key historical events in the past where God has been faithful to his people and he is calling for his readers to trust in God's faithfulness for the future. So if you're ever reading a psalm and it's giving you a history lesson, that may well be a psalm of remembrance. There are kingship psalms written about the kings of Israel, but also looking forward to the future king to come, the king of kings, King Jesus. And there are wisdom psalms, a minor category in the book of Psalms, but a major emphasis in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, other other songs in the poetry section of Scripture. But wisdom psalms, they teach us how to live a God-honoring and blessed life, how to maneuver wisely through this life and live in a way that brings honor and glory to God? Lots of psalms, different kinds and types of psalms. Why so many? Here's the answer. To give you and me a guide on how to approach God in every season of life. Wow, right? I would say that's necessary for us. When times are good for you, there's a psalm for that. When times are dark and difficult, there's a psalm for that. When times have been good, then they got bad, now they're good again, psalm for that. When you're struggling to trust in God, there's a psalm for that. When you need reminding of God's hand in your life as motivation for you to live for Him today, there's a psalm for that. When you need wisdom and direction from God, there is a psalm for that. There are Psalms for every season of life. Today in Psalm 96, we are looking at a psalm of praise. Psalm 96 is a psalm of praise. Praise psalms follow a very simple structure, and I'm going to give this to you. This will really help you identify praise psalms because there's a lot in the book of Psalms. Very simple structure. They begin with a call to praise, and sometimes it's a local call to praise or it's a universal call to praise. Then there is a reason for praise. Why are we supposed to be praising the Lord? Here's the reason. And then it ends with a further call to praise. Let me me show you where we see this in this psalm. Call to praise, we see in Psalm 96, verse 1. Look at it. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Do you see that? Call to praise. Who? Everyone, right? It's a universal call to praise. Why should we praise God? Here's the reason, verse 4. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Verse 6. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. There's some reasons for praise Then you have a further call to praise. Look at verse 7. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. So you see here, clearly a praise psalm. And I want you to see in this praise psalm that we have detailed instructions for how we as believers are to live lives of worship and praise to the Lord at all times and especially at this time of year when people's minds and hearts are more in tune with God's wonderful gift of salvation in the sending of His Son. Psalm 96, five things I want you to see from this psalm that that are true at all times but especially at Christmas. Number one, I want you to see worship is the command for everyone. Look at verses 1 and 2. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. According to this verse, who does God want to worship Him? Everyone. Very good. I like that. Good response. Miles got y'all worked up. I love it. All people everywhere this is a universal call to worship this is a call for all people everywhere to worship the lord now let me ask you very simply very simple question here where is this chapter and book found in the bible Old or new testament old isn't that interesting you see many when they think of the books in the old testament they think of them as really being only for the nation of israel they believe these books really pertain to them. But here we see early on, long before Christ came, God had His heart set on all nations, on all peoples, everywhere. We see that truth long before the Psalms, right? First book of the Bible, and all the way through. Through Psalms, and certainly after. This has always been the way. From the very beginning, God has always had this desire to be known and worship where he is not known and worshiped by all peoples everywhere. Folks, that includes people in here and that includes people out there. That includes your neighbors across the street, the stranger on the other side of the world, and this includes you. God wants to be known and worship where he is not known and worshiped by all peoples everywhere. And there's something else I really want you to see here. In in these first few verses, I really want you to get. and, And this is something you really need to let sink in. And let it be your motivation for going out and making God's gospel message known. Notice here, we're not asked to sing to the Lord. We're commanded to do it. The psalmist doesn't say here, if it's not too much trouble... If you have time, would you mind taking a little time out and singing to the Lord? He doesn't say, if you feel like it, would you mind taking some time out of your day to do it? Nope. In this psalm, he gives six imperatives, six commands, three times. He says, sing to the Lord, praise His name, proclaim His salvation, declare His glory. Something we find all throughout the Word of God is that God doesn't request worship. He demands it. Which means, if we're not worshiping Him, we are in disobedience. Heard someone say once, God's a gentleman. He always asks nicely for us to follow Him. God doesn't ask anything. He commands it. If you're not worshiping the Lord, you are not doing what you were created by God to do, what you are commanded by Him to do, you are in direct rebellion against God. And get this, the only way, this is another important point for you to get, the only way we are able to worship God is through being forgiven of sin and restored to a right relationship with God through faith alone in Christ alone. Non-believers, while worshipers of self in the world, are not worshipers of God. I don't get all this talk about seeker-sensitive worship and fashioning our worship services in such a way to appeal to non-worshippers, to people who don't even worship God. Why design your church and your worship service to appeal to a non-believer? Instead, design it for worshipers to worship God with other worshipers and show worshipers of self and the world what they're missing, right? That'd be like Jonathan changing everything he does at JW's to, to appeal to vegetarians. Why on earth would he do that? Right? Doesn't make any sense. To become a worshiper of God, we must be changed from the inside out. We must be forgiven of our sin. We must be restored to God by God's grace alone, through our faith alone, in Christ alone. That's why I love this time of year. It's at Christmas when we as believers are, are, are focused in. We're to be focused in on it at all times, but. But but we're we're really focused in on the great lengths that God has gone through to save us so that we can worship Him. He commands us to worship Him. We cannot worship Him because we're sinners set against Him. So He sent His Son to become one of us, to live the perfect life for us, to lay His life down as our substitute and perfect sacrifice, so that we, through faith alone, in Christ alone could be forgiven of sin and restored to a right relationship with the living God through Christ so that we could worship Him. Christmas should remind us that God has provided for us what He requires of us in Jesus. Christ has come. He has come to make a way for us to be worshipers of God. He has gone to great lengths to redeem us from sin and death and restore us to a right relationship with Him so that we can do what God created us to do, so that we can do what God commanded us to do, which is worship Him. The psalmist says, sing to the Lord a new song. Now, many commentators agree that with this phrase, the psalmist is calling for God's people to praise God for a new and great and glorious thing that He has done. And a portion of this psalm we learn when we, when we study it comes from 1 Chronicles 16, where God's people are celebrating the defeat of the Philistines and the return of the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem in the reign of David. You remember that, right? The return of the Ark in the reign of David signified the presence of God and His favor with His people in a new and unique Way, God saved them by warfare. He restored true worship to His people, by returning to, to be with them. And since this psalm was written, God has come, and He has come to dwell with his people in a newer, more unique and intimate way through the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. That truth should prompt us to sing a new song. To Him. It should prompt us to worship. What's the application for us today around Christmas? Well, since God has sent His Son to save you so that you could be made right with Him in order to worship Him, you should be obedient to Him. Amen? And spend your days in worship of Him. While people spend the majority of this Season in worshiping self and the world, believers, you spend it in worship of the one true and living God who sent His Son to save you so that you could worship Him. That should be your response. You should also spend it being a witness for Him. Point number two. Worldwide witness is the mission of every Christian. That's why I love we saying. Go tell it on the mountain. Over the hills and everywhere, right? Look at the end of verse 2. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the people. Skip down to verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Believers, we learned here, not only are we to have an upward, worshipful reply to God's gospel, but also an outward, evangelistic response. We are to tell others of God's work of salvation. James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary on the psalm, says this. Look at this quote. This psalm teaches that worship... Should never be merely a private thing, something between ourselves and God only, but should also be that which leads to a missionary witness. We are to declare His glory here, there, everywhere. We are to proclaim His marvelous works among all the peoples. Christmas is an opportune time for this, by the way. It really is. While there is a push today for this holiday to be more and more secular, we still have celebs singing Oh Holy Night. They don't really know what they're singing, but they're singing it. They know the words. We have malls playing Joy to the World, school choirs singing Silent Night, and non-believers wishing you a Merry Christmas. It still happens. Take every opportunity that God gives you to tell of His salvation. Tell others why Christ came, what He accomplished, and what our response should be. Boldly and unapologetically share how sin is the black backdrop of the Christmas story. Do you know that? Sin is the reason for the season. It doesn't look good on a, on a Christmas card. But that is exactly right. That's why Jesus came. Is it not? We've got to tell people that. While Miles said it's a joyous time, it should remind us of our sin and our need. We need to share about how Christ came because we're sinners set against God and how He came to provide a way for enemies like us to become children of God through faith alone in His person and work alone. Notice what else. The Lord's greatness should be the focus of the believer. Look at verses 4 through 6. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Here we have the reason for praise. Earlier, the psalmist gave a universal call to praise. Here he gives the reason why. For great is the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. I've told you this before. In the Old Testament, when you see the Lord in all caps, the English translator is telling us something there. That the sacred name of God is being used. Yahweh, right? This is Yahweh, the supreme God, God of gods. Yahweh is great and greatly to be praised. Simple logic here, because Yahweh, the one true and living God of the Scriptures, created us to worship Him, and because He is great, we should praise Him greatly. Pretty simple logic, right? That's what he's saying. And get this, anything less than that is not worthy of Him. Charles Spurgeon, in the treasury of David, says this, look at this quote, We cannot praise Him too much, too often, too zealously, too carefully, too joyfully. He deserves that nothing in His worship should be little, but all the honor rendered unto Him should be given in largeness of heart with the utmost zeal for His glory. Yes. In a moment, we're going to read that God calls for us to to give, the psalmist here, He calls for us to give God the glory that is due Him. How can we do that? Give Him worship that's worthy of Him. Well, we can't ultimately this side of glory. That's why I always state in here when I I pray that God is, is worthy of all we have to give Him corporately and so much more, right? You can't give Him more than what He is worthy of. He is worthy of all of it. But get this, give Him all you have as much as you can. Good application, right? How great is He? He has unmatched greatness. He is supremely great. He is creator. That is the ultimate cosmic trump card right there. Creator. No one else can say that. He is creator of all. Everything else is a part of his creation. He made the heavens, the psalmist says, and is to be revered. Feared above all gods. The reason is because he is the one true and living God. All other gods, little g gods, are false gods, worthless idols. Spurgeon again, next quote. The idol gods have no existence, but our God is the author of all existences. The poetic language here is lost on us because we're not reading it in the Hebrew. Okay, let me just share this with you. This is extra. The word used here for little g gods is Elohim. Okay? And for idols is el So you hear the, the poetic structure there, right? The psalmist is saying very poetically, their Elohim gods are el worthless idols saying it very poetically, but he's he's, he's giving us a very important truth there. Jeremiah describes an idol made with human hands as a scarecrow in a cucumber field. What an offense to the creator of all that is to be compared to a worthless idol. Again, James Montgomery Boyce throwing a lot of quotes out at you. There were a lot of good ones. If, as the psalm says, Jehovah made the heavens, and if splendor and majesty, strength and glory belong to Him alone, then it is not only wrong, but also a sin to worship any other. If you are not worshiping the God of the Bible exclusively, as God says you must do, you are not worshiping God. The psalmist says God is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be praised greatly for His greatness, for He is truly great. He is to be feared above all Elohim who are worthless Elohim. He is to be praised because He is Creator. Psalmist says, Splendor and majesty are before Him, and strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. These words tell us that in God's sanctuary, in His presence, there is safety there is security, there is strength, along with untold beauty. Believers, that is where our focus is to be at all times, and especially at Christmas. Because Christ came, again, because of His person and work, because we are trusting in Him, alone for our salvation, we are promised forever with the one true and living God with His people forever. Where the psalmist tells us in Psalm 16, there in His presence there is fullness of joy at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. How many of you love a beautifully decorated house for Christmas? How many of y'all like that? We, uh, we enjoyed that last week at my aunt's. Six Christmas trees. There was a lot. Joy loves Christmas, and she was just like in a winter, wonderland. We had to drag her away. She loved it, yeah. And, and loved being in that beautifully decorated house with friends and family. That's, that's wonderful, isn't it? Last Christmas, we spent Christmas Eve and Christmas Day in a cabin in the Smoky Mountains. And when we arrived, the snow came, and it snowed all night to the next day. The, the chalet where we were staying, it was beautifully decorated. I believe I have a, a picture of it up here we uh, that 's Christmas morning. We spent just the day in that beautiful cabin in the mountains, surrounded by snow, just just snuggled up together it was It was awesome. We felt secure. there was joy being surrounded by god 's creation snow and the mountains. It was just, it was incredible feeling. Imagine that times a million and it doesn't come close to being in God's presence with His people as His children. As we were leaving the mountains the day after Christmas, I was trying to take it in. It was an incredible drive. I was just like, I've got got to get a snapshot of this because I may never see it. Like this, again, this side of glory, right? It was an incredible scene, that, that beauty. But we left it behind, right? Believers, we are promised forever in God's presence with His people. That is where our focus should be this time of year. That should be the source of our, our joy should be set on the joy of God's presence. The joy that we experience with family and friends this holiday season in a beautifully decorated home. It's, it's wonderful. It's a gift from God, but it doesn't compare to a day in His glory. Not a day. Next point. Worthy recognition of glory is the proper response to the Lord. After giving the call to praise and the reason for praise, the psalmist gives words of instruction on how to worship. As we set our sights on God's majesty and His beauty, His splendor and glory, we should give glory to the Lord. We should praise Him for who He is. That is what worship is. Here's a very simple definition of worship. Write this down. Worship is focusing on and responding to God. That's what worship is. Focusing on and responding to God. It's really simple. When you read His Word, you learn of His greatness, you respond by praising Him, giving Him the praise that is due Him and and the the credit He is due, the amount of credit He is due. That's That's what worship is. When you witness something beautiful in creation, you praise God for it. You give Him the credit that is due and the credit that is due, the amount that is due, right? That's what worship is. When is the last time you praise God for God? How many of you jumped up when Pollard made that long touchdown run, ran the kickoff back for a touchdown on Thanksgiving? I'm guilty of it. We're yelling. We're screaming. We're giving credit where credit is due. Look at that great play. We do it naturally there, right? When's the last time you praise God for God? You looked at his beautiful creation. You read his word. You, you you observed his work in your life, and you praised him for it, and gave him credit that is due for that. That's what worship is. That is to be our response to God. The psalmist, look at what he says here, verses seven through nine. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord. The glory do His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. It's important to note here that the psalmist is not calling for the worshiper to give God something he does not deserve or that he does not have. Sometimes you'll do that with the children you love, right? You'll be like, oh, that picture you drew of me is so wonderful. Look at this, you know. You'll post it on the wall. You, Sorry, kiddos. But you know why you're doing that, right, parent, grandparent? That's not what the psalmist is calling for here. He's calling for the worshiper to give God nothing less or nothing more than the praise that is due him, right? Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. The psalmist has been saying that the Lord is glorious and strong, marvelous and majestic. He has been directing the worshiper's focus to the glory of the Lord. Now he's calling him to give the glory that is due him. We said a moment ago that this is, is, is not possible, this side of glory, because he's worthy of all of it, right? But we're to be striving to worship him in a manner worthy of him. This is the time of year when we're focused on things that we want, right? And things that we want to give to others, giving gifts here. Notice the psalmist here calls for us to give something to God. Focus on doing this this year as you're thinking about gifts you're getting to, giving to others and gifts you're going out to buy. The psalmist here, he calls for us to bring an offering and come into his courts. We give gifts this time of year that are undeserved, many of them given in love. The psalmist here calls for you, the believer, to bring God what is due God. An offering of praise. Come into his courts enter into his presence with minds fixed on God's greatness and with worship on your lips are your minds fixed on God today and do the words of your mouth flow from those thoughts we are called to worship the lord in the in the splendor of holiness which can be translated the splendid presence of the all holy one worship the lord in the splendid presence of the All-Holy One. According to the psalmist, the truth of who God is should cause you to respond in this way. It should cause you to tremble. Your mind fixed on the glory of God to such an extent that you tremble before Him. Such a consumer mentality in the church today. An attitude that says, "I'll, I'll go to this church or that church if it checks all my preferential boxes, right? They have something for my children, activities for my teens, they adopt my programs. The psalmist here tells us that we're to enter into God's presence to give rather than to get. You see that? Did you come today to give to God? You should enter into this place with mindset on. Giving God your all an offering of praise. right? Thanksgiving. Worship. Notice what the psalmist says here. When we enter into God's presence, we're to give rather than to get. Ascribe. 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 Bring. Worship. Tremble. Last point. God's universal reign is the Christian message. Look beginning in verse 10. So in this final section of the psalm, the psalmist is calling for God's people to announce to the nations that the Lord reigns. While it doesn't always feel like it, we are to declare it because that is the reality. Our God rules and reigns. We are to show forth that reality, believers, by living our lives under His rule and reign. While because of the fall, creation at times becomes very unruly toward us, it is firmly established by God. Meaning, God's got this no matter what happens. While tragedy strikes because of sin, while evil acts committed in this life often go unpunished, there is coming a day when Christ will return and right every wrong and righteously judge the world. Just like True worshipers are called to give God His due. Guess what? God is going to eventually give His enemies their due. We're told that creation groans, along with the children of God, for the return of Christ, and all that that entails. When He does return, we're told the heavens will be glad, the earth will rejoice, the seas will roar, and so will all that fill it. It will exalt. The trees of the forest will sing. What this means is the world will be made new. It groans for that time. We we, we see it groaning today. When we witness natural disasters and different things, we see creation groaning, longing for, and we are to long with with creation for things to be made right. And it will one day be. And when it happens, we're all going to praise God for it. The dead in Christ will rise. Those still here trusting in Christ alone for salvation will be made new. They'll be given new bodies fit for eternity in a renewed and restored creation in the presence of the Lord with His people forever. Some of you are thinking, okay, Graham, I I get it. I get what that, that's what this passage is about. The reign of Christ, which joy to the world is as well. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks more than just a Christmas song, based on Psalm 98. What does this have to do with Christmas, the second coming? Well, think about it. The work that Christ accomplished during His first coming is what makes what He's going to do next possible. Look at the last line. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people in His faithfulness. Who are righteous? Paul says in Romans 3, there are none righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. If God judged us by His righteousness, who would be left standing? We're told in Psalm 130, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. God requires perfection, and that's bad news. Because ain't none of us perfect. Praise be to God. Again, He gives us, He provides for us what He requires of us in Jesus. Christmas reminds us that God has provided condemned sinners with a perfect Savior. A way to be forgiven. A way to be declared not guilty, but righteous through faith in Christ. He made a way for God's enemies to become His children through the person and work of His Son. While God is righteous and man is sinful, praise be to God, He sent Jesus to be our Savior. Christ has come. He has accomplished this glorious work of salvation and a response to Him is necessary. Christ came, lived, died, rose again in order to save us. He returned to the right hand of the Father on high and will return again to judge and condemn and to restore and redeem. We are told as sure as He came the first time, He's coming again. Christmas should remind you He's already come once, which means He's returning. Christmas should remind you that Christ is returning someday soon to finish The work He started over 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem to to complete the work He accomplished at, at Calvary. So we must be ready. Are you ready for His return? Have you forsaken your sin? Are you trusting in God's Son alone for your salvation today? If not, this is your invitation. I invite you to turn from your sin Bow before King Jesus. Give your life up and over to him. Surrender to him as Lord today and be saved.